so here we are in John 18, continuing our study through the gospel. Last week, seeing this encounter that took place in the Garden of Gethsemane and the confrontation that took place in the Garden of Gethsemane as this whole detachment of troops, this whole army, uh, as we said, was anywhere from 200 to 1,000 soldiers that had come uh, against Jesus uh, with Judas, uh, you know, leading the way. And so they, they came to do battle when Jesus was not a warrior of any sort. They were not properly equipped or prepared for what was going to hit them. And we know that Jesus uh, demonstrated his power there. Uh, but here we're still in the same place. We're picking up exactly where we left off with the very next moment after, after this exchange had taken place and, and uh, Jesus healed Malchus's ear that Peter had cut off and, and Jesus rebukes Peter because Peter often needs to be rebuked. And then in verse 12, then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. This detachment, as we said, there are hundreds here that have come against Jesus, come to do battle. They were equipped for battle physical battle, but Jesus showed up and he brought the spiritual realm and they weren't ready for it. As we know, Jesus said the words, I am, and they fell back like dead men, right? In the simple name and proclaiming the name, that the power that is in the name of the I am, uh, he demonstrated that power and that authority. But now here they, they're trying to overcome uh, their deficiencies. They're trying to overcome the, the display of power that Jesus showed. Now they want to put on display their own uh, physical power. And we're going to see that unfold a little bit more throughout the message here, the physical power of man trying to overtake the power of Jesus. And, and, and it looks somewhat foolish, doesn't it? But here we have the captain that's there, and the captain being there would verify that this raid was supported by the Roman government. That they would send the captain as like, we're, we're in on this. We have concern of this man, Jesus. We have concern of the perhaps the insurrection that could, could surround him and that he could bring and rally the troops around him. So the government was threatened by him just as much as the religious system was threatened by him. So they have the religious system coming against Jesus. They have the government coming against Jesus. The military is against him. And Jesus had threatened their system tremendously. Uh, because we know as we've studied through the Gospel of John that Jesus had constantly taken the religiosity and the religious system and turned it upside down and had brought a new covenant and a new way and, and had, had brought fulfillment to the whole the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the, the law, and the prophets. And so in the midst of that, he's turning the religious system upside down. They couldn't handle it. So what do they do? They bound him with ropes. Was that necessary? No. Listen, after the display that Jesus just put on, you think that ropes are going to be useful? He said, I am, and they fell like dead men. And they're like, let's tie him up. Really? 
It's like those kid, the kids have like the play handcuffs that have the little button. You're like, okay, thanks. Have a nice day. They're like, I'm going to caress you, dad. You know, okay. Okay, very good. You know, the things don't even fit around my wrist. It's like a child's toy and they come to Jesus. <laughs> Let's we'll tie him up. It's ridiculous. Jesus just demonstrated this amazing power. He put on display both great power and great humility, and his great power would prove their bounds to be completely useless, and his great humility would prove their bounds to be completely unnecessary. He didn't need to be bound. He already proved his humility. He said to them, take me, leave my disciples alone. He demonstrated power, he demonstrated humility, and that would prove these bounds to be both useless and unnecessary. Proving so much more how Jesus completely surrendered himself even to be bound without purpose and without necessity. But we continue verse 13, and so they bound him and they led him away to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was the high priest that year. Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas who is the current high priest, but Annas himself was a previous high priest. And he had a lineage of uh, four high priests that followed him in his family. And now even his son-in-law being the current high priest. What's happening here now, you know, he's still called a high priest, even though he's not the acting high priest. He still got that honor. He still was given authority. Clearly, he had much authority. He had much influence in the religious system that they bring him there first. But also, it's interesting that they don't bring him to the high priest, and we'll get further into that later on. They will eventually. But Annas was the type who held on to power. He held on to influence as much as he could. He's no longer the high priest, but he still was an influential part of the religious system. But then verse 14 tells us about Caiaphas. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now what the significance of this is that there was a setup all the way back to John chapter 11. Caiaphas, who's the current high priest, he brought a prophetic word without even knowing it. In John chapter 11, we studied it several weeks ago. In verse 49, it says this, And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority. But, being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. So we are referenced here in chapter 18, verse 14, back to chapter 11, verse 53, where it says, and from this point forward, they plotted to put him to death. This is Caiaphas. Caiaphas spoke, and he, the prophecy that he made, he had no idea what he was saying. Is it not expedient that one man should die for all? Interesting, you should say that. 
Because that's the plan for redemption, Caiaphas, you high priest. God is using the truth out of his mouth with the worst intent. God was using it. He didn't even know it. So remember, that as the high priest, this is what the high priest was doing while Jesus, in John 17, was fulfilling the role of the high priest in praying for himself, for his disciples, and for all believers. The high priest, Caiaphas, is plotting to kill Jesus while Jesus is fulfilling his role. Jesus is bringing fulfillment to the position of the high priest because we know Jesus is the great high priest. But see, Caiaphas, he's, he's prophesying and he doesn't even know it. But yet he spoke profound truth. God uses wicked people. God uses the words of wicked people. God puts people in authority. I'm sorry to say it, God puts people in authority for a purpose to fulfill his plan. And we get all upset and think that this is unjust. It's not right. It's not okay. We make claims based on our idea of justice. But God puts people in authority. Nobody is in authority without God ordaining it. That goes for our current New Jersey governor. That goes for our current US president. That goes for anybody in authority. God has put them there. And God will use them to fulfill his plan perfectly. Even these words out of Caiaphas's mouth were a prophecy of one man dying for all. Such profound truth. And it wasn't an uncommon phrase even that they would use this terminology to say, it is expedient that one should die for all. This was the idea that it was, is it better for one to suffer than for all to suffer? However, there was no moral standard there. It was wrong, of course, to put an innocent man to death. They knew it, but they were planning for it. That's what we're seeing unfold, is their plan to put an innocent man to death. That started back in John 11. They plotted to put him to death then. They didn't plot to bring him in for questioning. That wasn't their plan. Hey, let's just see what this Jesus is all about. Let's bring him in. Let's ask him some questions. And they will ask him questions about his doctrine, about his followers, right? But this was not for a purpose other than so that they could lead to his death. They could lead to his crucifixion. That was the plan. From John 11 on, they plotted to put him to death. So clearly, what we see here beginning to unfold is a setup, it's a setup for a completely unfair trial. And they brought him first to Annas as part of that setup. He wasn't the current high priest. But in people's minds, he still had authority and influence as a previous high priest. In verse 15, we continue. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and did, as did, so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. 
Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Simon Peter, being Simon Peter, taking matters into his own hands. And remember the disciples, as Jesus had said was going to happen, they were scattered from the garden. They were sent out from the garden. Jesus spared them. He said, spare my disciples, leave them alone, take me. And, and they, they left from the garden. Kind of, they all went their separate ways. But Peter came back. Peter came back taking some matters into his own hands, making an attempt to redeem himself after the debacle that just took place in the garden. After he just cut off Malchus's ear, and that didn't go very well, did it? After he tried to fight for Jesus, after he took matters already into his, his own hands, and as we talked about last week, is that he tried to demonstrate his own version of faith on his own terms. And so now we start, we're starting to see that again. Peter, it takes a lot for Peter to learn. I think we can all relate. I can relate well to Peter. We take matters into our own hands. Doesn't work out well. Jesus fixes it, puts the ear back on. What do we do? We go back and we take matters into our own hands again. Doesn't work out well again. But God is merciful. He continues to give opportunity. But So Peter, again, is demonstrating his version of faith on his terms. Trying to prove his loyalty after what had just taken place in the garden. He was trying to prove his loyalty when he cut off Malchus's ear. As he told Jesus, I'm going to die for you, Jesus. Jesus, get behind me, Satan. It's not going to happen. And now he tries to do it. He tries to prove his loyalty. It doesn't work out. This is commendable in theory, but not in execution. Peter comes up with the idea, I'm going to go fight for you. Now he's going to follow, and he's going to watch the trial. Because he knew he messed up big time. Maybe I'll get an opportunity to redeem myself. And many would believe here that it's even John who was the disciple that was with him. Because John often does not name himself. And as, as he's writing these words, he's like, that was another disciple. Even previously, he said, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't name himself, but he kind of just puts it out there. Another one of the disciples. And, and so um, John goes to get Peter. It has influence and has, and has a relationship of sorts with the high priest and is able to get Peter in as he talks to the, the girl who's the doorkeeper. Hey, let's, can we get him in? So now she asks the question, wait, why, why would you be getting in with one of his followers? Are you not one of his followers? You know, so Peter here, he's questioned, and the servant girl, she asks the question, are you not also? So the other one she knew was a disciple of Jesus. But now she says, are you not also one of those disciples, one of this man's followers? This is another one of those derogatory statements toward Jesus, saying this man is not kind words. It's as we talked about last week, they called him Jesus of Nazareth. These are not, this is a derogatory name of Jesus. Now they're saying this man, kind of like, you know, this guy, are you not one of this guy's followers? And so Peter taking matters into his own hands. Peter was following, looking for an opportunity that he might 
prove his loyalty to Jesus. And now the opportunity is presented to him. Are you not one of his followers? No. I don't know what you're talking about. The opportunity was right there. He had the opportunity to show his loyalty that he so desperately wanted to prove. But he didn't. Because it was his version of faith. It was his terms. It was following close enough that he could be an observer but he wasn't in the game. God gave him opportunity as God often does. Do we show ourselves faithful or faithless when God gives us the opportunity? Maybe it's in the workplace. God gives the opportunity that you are able to say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Peter's response, simple words, I am not. They're interesting words based on what Jesus just said in the garden. When they said, we come for Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am. And now they say, are you one of his followers? He says, I am not. It's an interesting admission that Peter has without even noting that he's admitting. He doesn't come close. The statement after he heard Jesus say these words, it's a humbling admission that he couldn't compare to the power and the might of Jesus, but he also won't even make a stand as a follower of Jesus. There was so much religious and political oppression that Peter was so afraid to admit that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, we have not faced persecution in America. But more and more, perhaps, you fear to admit that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's easier to say, I am not. I think back, and maybe you, there's many circumstances we can think of, but I think back to 1998 at Columbine in Colorado the high school where they, people were asked the question, given the opportunity to stand for their faith, and they say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and they died for their faith. And how many stories throughout all of history of the martyrs and Peter who would eventually be a martyr himself, but he had some learning to do, didn't he? He was asked the question, and out of great fear, guys, fear will control us sometimes. And there was such great fear of the oppression of the religiosity, the oppression of the government, of the political system, of the military system that was there. They had taken Jesus. They had arrested him. They bound him and took him away like a criminal. And Peter's watching from a distance and out of fear, he would not admit that he was a follower of Jesus Christ because that fear can be so crippling. And that fear will influence every decision we make sometimes. But like Peter, we are not quick to admit that we're so fearful. Peter just says, I am not. 
Then it goes on. And it it actually demonstrates to us where Peter had gotten himself to very, very quickly. In verse uh, 18, the servants and the officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Peter stood with the enemy. Peter stood, it put himself in a place of comfort in the world. He put himself in a place of comfort not as a follower of Jesus Christ, where he wouldn't admit that he was a follower of Jesus, but then made company with the world around the fire warming himself, comforting himself. Luke and Matthew tell us that this is not the idea of actually physically standing, but they were actually sitting around the fire. John in this writing is actually speaking more figuratively as he's saying Peter stood with them. It's almost that Peter was in alliance with them. He had aligned himself with the world with some of those perhaps who were just involved in the arrest and binding and bringing Jesus to Annas. He put himself in a place of comfort with the world, warming by the fire. You will only be comfortable with the world when you are distancing yourself from your identity in Christ. His identity should have been in Christ. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. But he said, no, I am not a follower of Jesus Christ. So then he started to identify with the world and warming himself and being found comfortable around the fire. We should never be comfortable around the fire with the world. But not only that, Peter sought not only comfort, but a desire to blend in. A desire not to stand out. After Jesus just told his disciples, you are not of this world. Peter heard him say those words, you are not of this world. You're set apart. Now he's trying to blend in with the world. He's mixing it up with the enemy. He tries to blend in because of great fear. Multiple things. The words out of his mouth were fueled by great fear. His actions were fueled by great fear. There's two forms of denial here. In word, when he said, I am not a follower of Jesus, and in action, that he was taking comfort and blending in with the world. He had no business being there. Verse 19. The high priest... Then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always met. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me that I said what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Jesus is on trial, but it's not an official trial yet because Annas isn't 
the official high priest. He's given the title still, kind of like we would still call a, a past president Mr. President, even though they're not the current president, right? But, they're, but they still get that honor. Annas is in that place. He still has much influence. He still has much respect of the religious system. So he, that's where Jesus is on this unofficial trial. And, and he asks him about his disciples and his doctrine. Now, Jesus goes on first of all to address, and really only to address, his doctrine. He says, look, I've spoken openly. My doctrine, there's nothing hidden in my doctrine. There's no secret message. I spoke openly in the synagogues. I spoke openly in the temple, in the courtyards. You guys heard me. I saw you over there. I mean, this is the idea. I saw you over there creeping over, like trying to listen in, trying to catch me on something. This is the idea. What they're, they knew exactly what's going on, but they asked him about this doctrine, wanting to understand what, if there was a threat that, would, it, that something would threaten their religious system. They wanted to know what the teaching was and what teaching it was that would cause a threat to them. That they might get something, that they could twist his words enough to convict him right here and now without a real trial at all. Because this wasn't a real trial. But he says, my doctrine you know. My doctrine I have spoken openly. He doesn't even continue to explain. He said, I made it clear. I've made it clear many times. There is nothing of my doctrine that has been in secret. Now in relation to his disciples, because so they're asking about his doctrine and what are the words, what are the teachings that we could catch him on here? And he doesn't even directly reference it. He just says, my doctrine is my doctrine. And my doctrine has been open. There's nothing secret in it. You should know it. But then as far as his disciples are concerned, he's, just, he's still protecting them because he prayed for it. And he turns things on now on the high priest and says, why do you ask? What Jesus is doing, Jesus is actually representing his knowledge of the law right here. He knows what a fair trial is and he knows this isn't it. So why do you ask? Are you looking for witnesses against me? Or are you looking for witnesses for me? Because that's actually what the high priest is supposed to do. First, they're supposed to get the witnesses for the defense. But... One, he's not actually the high priest. Two, he's not doing this fairly. But he could kind of get around it. This was their way to skate around it because he wasn't actually the high priest. He wasn't the acting high priest, so he, they could skate around it that way. They could do this in a different way. They could present this differently. They, we don't have to give him a fair trial because it's not actually an official trial. But Jesus is like, hey, guys, I know the law. Where's the defense? Go and get all, the, all of the people, all my disciples that you're asking about. You go get them. You ask them. Anybody who's heard me, you could ask them. There's my defense that you have not given me. They haven't read him as Miranda rights, right? He's like, hey, I know my rights. Go get them. Let's do this, Let's do this the right way. And Jesus representing, they, they might have thought, man, he's an uneducated man from Nazareth. We'll, we'll work this out. We'll skate around it, you know? Wasn't gonna work. But it also shows as it continues. As Jesus demonstrates his knowledge here of the law, they continue to just keep going and giving him even more of an unfair trial. And, and it just shows, man, he was, 
so undeserving of all of this, but yet he's the one who laid down his life. He's the one who surrendered himself. It had nothing to do with what they had on him, with the power that they tried to prove that they could have over him. They had none. So another sign of an unfair trial They were concerned about the people who might cause a threat. And Jesus welcomes even the challenge to his teachings that his words would be proven to be perfect and true, that his followers would verify his teaching. But it's clear, the trial was unfair. And we, in the world today, we get so caught up in what's fair and what's just And we forget so quickly what Jesus went through. We forget so quickly that he's actually the only one who was perfect and yet was treated so unfairly and unjustly. Wasn't even put on a real trial to start. Do we realize that when we're all caught up in in what's fair, do we realize that our salvation came through an unfair and unjust trial of a perfect and holy Savior? Is that fair? Is it fair that Jesus not only laid down his life, but he took on the weight of sin and death? He carried the burden. He died on a cross, took our place. Is it fair? But yet we always want to wave the flag of what's fair. As parents, we're really good to tell our kids, life's not fair. Live with it. Deal with it. Right? They say it's not fair. Four kids, they want everything to be equal. All things need to be equal for four kids. You can't just get, hey, can I have a treat? Yeah, here's a treat. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) Somebody else is finding out. And they all want the treat, and it's got to be exactly the same thing, the same size, the same caliber of treat. You can't give one a dollar and the other one four quarters. They all have to have a paper dollar. That's the way it goes. We, but we're the same. We act like toddlers sometimes. and we're, It's not fair. The world's not fair. There's so much injustice. What do we expect There's only one who's just, and he gave up his life willingly to an unjust, unfair system. That's how our salvation came. Verse 22. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered him, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas. The physical abuse begins right here. Up until this point, they have not gotten physical with Jesus, but now everything changes. And this opens the floodgates. And remember, though, this was the plan from the beginning. John chapter 11, they plotted to kill him. They didn't didn't plot to bring him on trial. They didn't plot to question him. They plotted to kill him. And they were looking for the opportunity where they could begin. 
And so this disrespect that, that they, they thought was disrespect, Jesus is not saying anything disrespectful. He's speaking truth. He's asking for a fair trial. But the physical abuse begins. They slapped, he, this man slapped Jesus with the palm of his hand and accused him of disrespect toward the high priest. But this would open the floodgates to the physical abuse that led to the crucifixion of Christ. They had nothing on Jesus but jealousy and indignation, and that's what came out in this slap across the face. They're trying to catch him on something. They've been trying for some time. Then they just plotted to kill him. They said, we'll get the evidence. We'll figure it out along the way. They can't figure it out. They've got nothing on him. It's just jealousy and indignation. So out of that erupts this anger. They cross the line. And once they cross that line, there's no going back. And Jesus then is even further demonstrating his knowledge of the law and the judicial system and what, what's fair. And he says, look, if I've spoken evil, justify it. Justify that slap across the face. If I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. Where is it? There's no witnesses of any sort here. They haven't called for a defense witness. They haven't called to, for a witness against Jesus. Everything was done in a completely unjust and unfair way. Jesus is exposing the truth that one, they have nothing on him, and two, they were not following their own judicial protocol. So what came out of that? Anger, frustration. So what did they do? Anna sent him on. I don't know what to do. Send him to the next guy. We tried to do this the secret way. We tried to have an unofficial trial. Now it needs to get official. And it says then again that they sent him bound to Caiaphas. Now it doesn't say anywhere that they loosed his bounds. So Jesus this whole time is before them as he is bound, whether his hands in front or his hands behind his back, He's left in a place of physical powerlessness, right? And so the man who slapped him across the face did it while his hands were tied behind his back. As to say, perhaps that he was unarmed. Further injustice. They didn't know what to, Jesus, what to do with Jesus. They tried to make it happen quickly unofficially, but it wasn't possible. So now they had to go on to official business. Send him to the high priest. Because Jesus had knowledge of their judicial system, he had knowledge of the, the Jewish law, they underestimated him once again. They send him on, and they send him on treating him like a dangerous criminal. Verse 25, now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Same words he said before, same question he was asked. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off said, did I not see you in the garden with him? 
Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. So they've questioned Peter again. Now, Peter still mixing it up with the enemy, still hanging out around the fire. Not going to make much of an impact there. You're not going to prove your loyalty to Jesus when you're aligned with the world. You're not going to prove your loyalty to Jesus when you're on the sideline watching. Peter likely had seen what had happened, that things had started to get physical. So now the fear that he already had has escalated. There's more fear now. Now he actually is understanding that this has gotten very serious. So now that fear is completely crippling him. And when asked the question again, Peter responds, I am not. Clearly, once again, forgetting what Jesus said, that he is the I am. That he prayed for his disciples. He prayed for their protection. Peter denies now any association with Jesus whatsoever. As followers, are we on the sidelines or are we guilty by association? We should be guilty by association. And again, then a third time. Now this time, there was eyewitness. The third time, another opportunity to demonstrate faithfulness and loyalty. An eyewitness, a relative of Malchus, whose ear was cut off in the garden, they would probably know what happened. Like, hey, you, I, I think I saw you. You cut off my cousin's ear. He didn't say that, but you get the idea here. They know what they saw. They're like, didn't I see you in the garden? Weren't you that guy who's really bad swordsman? So in this opportunity, once again, to demonstrate faithfulness, Peter denied a third time. And this time with cursing and anger and rage that's coming out of him to try to convince them. So now what's happening, he's distancing himself even from the idea of being a Christ follower. Because that's not what a follower of Christ would sound like. That's not what a follower, the words that would come out of a disciple's mouth. But yet here's Peter cursing, sounding like the world, looking and and demonstrating himself to be more like the world than like Christ. He's trying to sell it. But this is the fade, isn't it? We mix it up with the world. We find comfort in the world. We try to blend in with the world. And eventually we end up acting and sounding just like the world. Denying, in the midst of that, we are denying any association with Jesus. We defame the name of Christ when we act like this. When there's profane speech coming out of our mouth, when there's this anger or rage, when, when, like, do, do we look like a Christian? Are we guilty by association? Do people look at us and be like, that's a Christian, that's a follower of Jesus Christ? 
And they don't look like the rest of the world. They don't sound like the rest of the world. But Peter had gotten himself to this place. In the midst of denying Christ, denying his association with Christ, he's looking more and more and more like the world. It happened so quickly. But it happened very gradually. Just one small compromise. Putting himself in fellowship with the world. Putting himself in comfort with the world. It leads to looking just like the world. And then, this this heartbreaking moment, Peter denied again, and immediately, the rooster crowed. That moment must have brought the greatest heartbreak to Peter because Jesus told him this was going to happen. Jesus told him that before the rooster crows, you would deny me three times. Peter thought in no way is that going to happen. And we'll we'll do things like this. We make promises to God. We say, God, if you help me, I will never do this again, right? Right? We, we have our things that we'll give, we'll give to God. Like, I promise I'll never do that again. And then what happens? We don't plan to do things. But we put ourselves in positions that we should never put ourselves in. And then we make decisions based on fear, based on circumstance. And those decisions make us look like the world. And make us look like like we are denying any association with Jesus at all. Make us look really foolish and they defame the name of Christ. At that moment though, there's a moment when Peter realized it happened. He promised it would not happen. Lord, let it not be so. It's not possible. And it happened. It happened because Jesus said it was going to happen. And we have learned in our study in the Gospel of John, if Jesus says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. We will take it as an absolute. And Jesus said it would happen, so it happens. The rooster crows and Peter faces this moment where his heart would have sunk. And he realized the truth, that he had missed the opportunities that he was so longing for to prove his faithfulness to Jesus, to prove his loyalty to Jesus. He missed the opportunities and had done exactly what he vowed not to do. But you see, Jesus said it would happen. Jesus also said, you are Simon, you shall be Cephas. Just a few chapters from here in John 21, we're going to see Jesus restoring Peter after this. Peter walked away from Jesus at this point. This is total backslidden Peter, denying his association with Jesus altogether, but yet Jesus restores him. Jesus has a plan to go further with Peter. In his mercy, there's more.
there will be more opportunity for Peter. And this wasn't the end. God wasn't done with him yet. And Peter would prove his faithfulness to God time and time again beyond this. Peter would die a martyr's death proving his faithfulness to God. This was all part of his experience of drawing near to Jesus. It didn't have to happen this way, right? It doesn't have to, we don't have to go through these bad decisions. But in his mercy, there's more. There's hope when we feel hopeless. There's hope even when we are faithless. When we are faithless, he is faithful. We've, we've heard it said, we know it well, we'll proclaim it, we'll claim it for ourselves. When we are faithless, he's faithful. Is that a great claim for ourselves? <laughs> but like Peter, we are making an admission without even knowing it sometimes. When we quote that, when we proclaim that truth, but he is faithful, he does have a plan. And even though we may mess up, even though you maybe you've been in that place and maybe you're there right now of disassociating yourself, distancing yourself from any association with Jesus, that you wouldn't even claim to be a follower. His mercy is more. He's got a plan. You can always come back. You can always come to Jesus. There's nothing you could, like, you look at Peter, you think, man, he's done some really bad stuff. He actually straight up denied Jesus. As he watched everything Jesus said was going to happen unfold, he straight up denied him. When Jesus was going to the cross, he was going to his death, he straight up denied him because of fear. Because of fear that the world had put on him. Because of all the cares, because of his physical well-being. All the fear that comes from the oppression that he had faced as a follower of Jesus. He wouldn't claim it now. But his mercy is more. He's got a plan. 